The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Good evening, Tom. How are you doing there? Good, Father. How are you? Just fabulous. Thank you. Good, good. Grateful. Yeah? Yes. As That's one good. of our locals always says, he's very grateful. So I'm <laughs> trying good. to learn that lesson. There you go. Uh, Father, we, we recently concluded the Christmas season with the Feast of Candlemas on February 2nd, and it happened to fall on a Friday this year. Mm-hmm. And it was recently brought to our attention that a local Tookline chapel <coughs> in the area actually uh, dispensed with the Friday abstinence from meat for all those who attended the Candlemas Mass that Friday evening. They had a, a dinner, a parish dinner after this Mass, and they said that all who attended the Mass were dispensed from the, the Friday uh, abstinence from meat. And uh, one of our viewers, Father, would like to know if that is a traditional Catholic practice to do no. that. No. Okay. No. No. <clears throat> Traditionally, the Church always guarded the Friday abstinence very carefully. I mean, they bound to paint a mortal sin. And actually, I mean, even, even Paul VI himself, when he gave the latitude to eat meat uh, for a serious reason on a Friday, insisted that one must offer a commensurate sacrifice uh, if he went ahead and ate the meat, in other words, he had to supply some sacrifice um, at the uh, in those days. And uh, so even, even in the Novus Ordo, I mean, it wasn't just thrown away. It was an apostolic tradition. Uh, the Church doesn't dispense from apostolic traditions fr- frivolously. But that's frivolous. Uh, I, I can't imagine what grounds, Catholic grounds, one would have, even a, a took line bishop could use to justify that. Except uh, the the common Novus Ordo ground of just uh, making it more, shall we say, comfortable for the people. That's, I mean, the, the changes in the Novus Ordo <clears throat> were all brought in trying to basically make themselves accommodating the people, accommodating the people. This sounds like another example of just kind of accommodating <clears throat> the people. At a time, too, when we, the world and the church really need penance, why would, quote-unquote, traditional Catholics <clears throat> be so ready to just take what penance always, Catholics everywhere always did and so easily just dismiss that? You know? mm-hmm. I, I, again, the mentality there, just, it isn't right in my sure. I, I understand that. Well, Father, while we're on the subject of the Took Bishops, we received an email from the author of the open letter to uh, to Bishop mm-hmm. Kelly concerning the, the Took line. And uh, he, he wrote us a, a, a brief email, Father, that I thought we could go through uh, rather quickly here. Mm-hmm. And he posits what he understands as your thesis. So I'd just like to read what he wrote and have you clarify if this is yeah. what you would consider did, your thesis. Did he actually send that to what Catholics believe uh, he was in correspondence with a viewer of what Catholics believe. Oh, so I see. I don't think okay. he sent it directly to us, but to a So the viewer sent it on to us. Yeah. I was going to say, because it would have been nice if he had sent that on to us directly. Yeah. So, yeah. But at least a viewer thought it was worth sending to us. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Well, let's see what he has to say here. Uh, so this is your thesis as he understands it, it, Father. In the past, the Church has never permitted people to receive the sacraments from clergy whose orders derive from a line of an excommunicated bishop unless at least one example can be shown from church history where the church did permit people to receive the sacraments from such a line of clergy. The Took side has no case. Is that your thesis, Father? No. Okay. It is not my thesis. In fact, I mean, one can discuss the point that he's raising there, but that's not my point. Uh, and uh, it, that troubles me a little bit because if he thinks that's my point, he's completely missed the point. You know? I mean, his point uh, from his open letter concerning the validity of the Tukline consecrations 
was that if a ceremony has been performed, a, a ceremony of consecrating a bishop has been performed, the Catholic Church presumes it is valid, <clears throat> and the, the burden of proof that it wasn't valid falls on the person who denies it. But the assumption or presumption is that it must be valid if a ceremony is performed. That is the thesis <clears throat> that the Turks uh, supporters come back to. You have to presume that these uh, consecration ceremonies done by Ashwishit took are valid as long as you admit that they happened. <clears throat> you have to prove that they're not valid. And that is not true. That is simply not true. They, they bring up what they consider evidence, and the evidence is quotes from uh, sacramental theologians of the church, moral theologians of the church, <clears throat> and they're, 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 they're interpreting the words of these theologians, Capello and Sullivan and others, <clears throat> to try to establish the principle that if a consecration ceremony takes place, Catholics must accept it as valid. And therefore, if you admit that Archbishop Took did a consecration ceremony of a bishop, you have to accept it as valid, according to their so-called Catholic principle. My, my point is, though, in responding to that erroneous uh, argument of theirs, is that the examples they're using of these sacramental theologians all refer to questions of, of consecrations of bishops done canonically according to the, norm, the rules of the church in normal times, in dioceses, by authorized bishops who are functioning officially in the capacity, uh, in their capacity as representatives of the Catholic Church. The Archbishop of the, the diocese, uh, an archdiocese, a bishop of a diocese, and so on. All of them are functioning officially and canonically uh, within the context of their role as the official recognized uh, uh, representatives of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, that was not done in the case of any of these consecrations. Um, Archbishop took, uh, basically took it upon himself to do this, to consecrate people, even uh, people who are into the occult. I mean, people don't necessarily realize that, but he consecrated people who are actually into the occult. <clears throat> and, um, and, and a notorious homosexual, um, was well-known leader of uh, homosexual activists in Paris. Okay? He consecrates him. And he consecrates him conditionally because he knew that he'd already been consecrated outside the Catholic Church previously to this. Archbishop Took was not acting in any capacity as a, an official representative of the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't, had no canonical authority to do it. He did. He just took it upon himself to do it. Now, one might argue, well, you know, Archbishop Fav was not authorized to consecrate bishops, and Bishop Mendes was not authorized to consecrate bishops. They can argue that, too. But there would be a false argument again. Why? Well, because when Archbishop Lefebvre <coughs> did consecrate bishops, and when Bishop Mendes did consecrate a bishop, Bishop Kelly, <coughs> there were witnesses there who were schooled in knowing what was necessary for the validity of that consecration, and they could testify under oath that, yes, the essentials, the essentials were done. <clears throat> that the matter, the form, as stated by St. Pius, the, the, uh, Pius XII in 1947, were met. <clears throat> uh, that the intention clearly was stated as far as what the Archbishop intended, what Bishop Mendes intended, there's no doubt but that these, uh, these were valid. But in Archbishop Took's case, you didn't have any of that. It was just dispensed with that. <clears throat> That's why the Tooks are left to say, well, uh, if he had a ceremony, and you admit he had a ceremony, you have to presume it's valid whether we can testify it or not. And the answer is, no, you don't. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The Church says, <clears throat> in cases like that, where an individual... <laughs> privately and uh, takes upon himself to consecrate a bishop you have to have the the necessary certitude and that certitude uh, is given not by some kind of presumption 
but by the fact that you have people who know what the matter and form is and what the necessary intention is, and they can testify even under oath that, yes, these were in fact stated and these were in fact present. So uh, the truth is exactly the opposite of what their argument is that the presumption is in favor of the consecration done by Took. The presumption, if there is a presumption, is against them. And the burden of proof is on them to show uh, that they were valid. If, if, look, you know, again, uh, I want to be, trying to be clear about this, and that is, take an example. When I, when I talk about a canonically uh, performed uh, uh, consecration of a bishop, I'm talking about a bishop who is consecrated in the course of the, of the normal uh, uh, procedure of the church, right? According to the, the standard operating procedure of the Catholic Church. So the Holy See names a bishop, or names a bishop to be consecrated. He chooses the bishops he would like to consecrate him, right? Or they're appointed. <clears throat> These, these men who are doing the consecration all have a, an official position in the Catholic Church to represent the Catholic Church. And they are acting in an official capacity. <clears throat> and uh, so this is a, a canonical you know, a consecration here. Archbishop de Feb was acting totally outside of that entire structure, entirely on his own, on his own recognizance, so to speak. <clears throat> And uh, he just went ahead on his own terms. But he did not provide, really, anyone to, to uh, be able to testify to the fact that what he did was correct. Um, even to the point of, you know, being valid. Um, and when we tried to find the testimony of those who are present, uh, Dr. Hiller and Dr. Heller, I told you about, they made it very clear to us they were not present as witnesses. They did not know what the essential words for the consecration of a bishop even were. They wouldn't have recognized them in the first place. Even when we pointed out them, them out to them, they didn't recognize them. They didn't know what constituted, according to Pope Pius XII, the absolutely necessary matter, the imposition of the two hands. They did not know these things. They were never pointed out to them. So I, I'm just uh, making... Th that, is, that is my point. The argument of the Tooks on the matter of the validity of the Took consecrations is not only uh, false, it is the opposite of the truth. Um, and they're, use, they're just using false arguments. Uh, the argument he's talking there has to do with their Catholicity, their, their being laicity. Right? I'm actually talking about the question of their validity and whether we are to, as they insist we must, presume that they are valid. No, we are not going to, we cannot presume they are valid. <clears throat> uh, Father Sanborn, Father Kelly at the time and I didn't go to Munich to interview these two university professors who were present at the consecration, say, of Gerard de Laurier. We didn't go to, to Munich because we thought we have to presume these things are valid. Let's go over and prove that they're not valid. None of us. Father Sanford didn't go over there with that mentality. Let's presume they're valid and let's see if we can prove they're not. He was looking for the same information that Kelly and I were going for. And that is Let's see if we can get the testimony we need to establish the, the validity of these things and with a certitude necessary so that we can actually, um, you know, take our souls, salvation in our hands with these things. And I know Father Samuel came away from that, those interviews with the same thought that I had. Look, we, we, can't, we, we can't risk even our own subjective confidence that Gerard de Laurier would make sure that this was right. We can't tell people, okay, it's okay for you to go and risk your souls on the basis of our, well, Father Sanborn's subjective certitude that he thought Gerard Laurier would, would have been sure that it was okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't have that same uh, subjective certitude about Father Gerard Laurier anyway. Um, but anyway, we, I, we all came away with the same understanding, and that is we cannot uh, tell the people that, that 
Well, we recognize that we were putting everyone's souls at risk by telling them to put their confidence in this. And Father, you, you mentioned their, their willingness to do away with the necessary uh, requirements like the, the, the witnesses and, and whatnot. And it seems that they, they've carried on that tradition today with what we just talked about, you know, their willingness to just do away with the Friday abstinence for, 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 for no, no, no serious reason. Uh, their willingness to, uh, I believe some of the, the chapels did away with the prayers after the low mass, the three Hail Marys and the St. Michael the Archangel prayer after the low mass. Right. And just, it seems that there's a, this theme of just the, this cavalier. Approving the, the death of Terry Scheibel. Yeah. There, there, it's just one thing after another with them. But, but once you start with the premise that you can justify something like that, that really traditionally is not justifiable, then, that, you know, there are so many things that follow mm -hmm. the same pattern. You're, you're right. Yeah. Well, we do see a pattern there, and it's not right. Now, unfortunately, um, Mario has, has misconstructed my, my point uh, and basically kind of substituted something that, that is not my point and didn't, didn't really acknowledge the point I was making, and I thought it was perfectly clear. I mean, you, you know, Tom, we've talked about this more than once. More than twice. <laughs> more than twice, <laughs> and not because we wanted to, but because people keep asking, you know. Mm -hmm. So I just don't see how I could, how I could miss my point, and write to one of our viewers something that is completely off my point, ignores the point I'm making, and substitutes something else in its place. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Father, there's there's a lot more here, but uh, I won't go through all of it. Um, it doesn't yeah. doesn't seem necessary to to beat a dead horse, but uh, it seems it seems that all of it is based on on this idea of, of this 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 misunderstanding of your of what he says is your thesis. And just this whole idea of uh, you're saying essentially that we have to establish a, a historical precedent yeah. to this. What I'm saying is when someone acts in his official capacity, mm -hmm. okay, that he has canonical authority within the Catholic Church traditionally, and he performs a sacramental act, okay, yes, the Church says there is the presumption of validity always um, because the Church backs that up with her own authority. He's acting with the, in his official capacity as a representative of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Church guarantees that with her authority. There is no such guarantee in this consecration that's done by Archbishop Tuck. You might say the same about Bishop Mendez. You say, might say the same about Archbishop Fenn. But I would say... Well, they would probably say, yes, I understand. I'm not acting in an official capacity here as the bishop of so-and-so, archbishop of the diocese or so-and-so. And so that is why they were so careful to make sure that they had the necessary witnesses to be able to guarantee for the certitude people would need that this is truly a valid consecration. Mm -hmm. Father, I would like to just discuss this one final point because it seems like this um, might be something that, w that we haven't an angle that we haven't discussed before. Yeah. But he says that um, that that the church has a distinction between banned excommunicantes and tolerated excommunicantes, and he says that uh, that, um, that 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 there's this difference between so there there's some that are banned and there's some that are tolerated, and that. The Code of Canon Law explicitly permits the faithful to receive the sacraments from tolerated excommunicantes. But again, I mean, he's following up that explanation with a false argument. And so he's trying to respond to what he says my argument is, that Catholics can't go to the excommunicated for sacraments, okay? So that's why he's making this distinction to say, oh, but they can go to the tolerated, not to the banned ones. Again, I emphasize, he's answering what is not my argument. But, but even at that, there's something very, very important about that statement that he's making. And that is, if you look back historically, Tom, and you consider the tradition of the church, you find <clears throat> that when the church has spoken against uh, finally uh, excommunicating, those who are consecrating bishops willy-nilly and, and uh, on their own uh, authority, you know, without any church authority or church, um, church requiring them to do so, the church again has spoken when she has decreed, has excommunicated them in such a way that they are bad. And I'll give you an example of that, okay? Why is this important? <clears throat> 
Because I think the Tooks, because they're very wily and they go all, they make all these arguments which don't apply, which makes me think that they, <clears throat> they're just trying to prove to them something to themselves more than to you and me. Again, they're trying to say, well, even if Archbishop Took was <clears throat> excommunicated for consecrating non-Catholics and even a cultist, it doesn't mean we, we can't go to them for, for sacraments, right? Because the church allowed that. What he's trying to say. <clears throat> but I think if you look, and I know, if you look back in church history, you'd find whenever the church actually pronounced a sentence of excommunication, now that is a, that someone can be excommunicated automatically by doing something that is so comp very bad, so, so, so bad, that it doesn't even require a statement by the church to excommunicate them. They're excommunicated simply for doing what they did, okay? Even if the church never pronounces a sentence of excommunication. There are certain excommunications that are just automatic. Attacking the life of the supreme pontiff, of a, a true pope, for example. Deliberate desecration of the Blessed Sacrament. These are crimes that are so grave <coughs> They incur automatic excommunication from the, at the very moment that they are that they are done, and there's no decree needed to excommunicate someone for doing these things. And the, the same, by the way, one of those automatic excommunications is consecrating on uh, bishops, you know, without any contra omni fas, as Pope Pius XII says, against all Catholic tradition, like consecrating an occultist or consecrating a non-Catholic, contrary to all Catholic tradition. Archbishop Tuck did that. Again, it is so grave that these the gravest crimes are subject to automatic excommunication. They don't need a statement from the Holy See announcing that you're excommunicated because you did this thing. Okay, and the consecration of such bishops as Archbishop Took did carry an excommunication which is in the most special manner reserved to the Holy See. In other words, the Holy See is the only one who can lift the excommunication, even an abortion. Uh, excommunicate someone simply, but that is reserved to the local bishop. The local bishop can actually lift the excommunication for performing or receiving an abortion. But this is so grave, it requires the Holy See itself to lift the excommunication. Nobody else has the power to do it. That's how grave this crime was that Archbishop took committed here. Now, one might argue, okay, well, if you want to be an ex, if there's going to be an excommunicatus <coughs> uh, in, in vitandus, excommunicatus vitandus is someone who has to be avoided, shunned, banned, right? You can have an excommunicatus toleratus, or you can, if he walks into the church, you can still go ahead and offer the mass, right? If an excommunicatus Vitandus, if, if one has been excommunicated by a decree naming him someone to be banned, if he walked into a church while church mass was going on, the mass would have to stop. If the, um, if the priests are in choir singing the divine office and an excommunicatus vitandus comes in, the divine office would have to stop. I mean, that's how grave this is. Even in his presence, you're not allowed to, <laughs> to do these things. That's pretty serious business. But that's not, that's not the result of an automatic excommunication. In a sense, he's right, but in the ultimate problem, he's wrong. And by that, I mean, Archbishop took... Oh, actually, he was named an excommunicatus. Okay, he was named that. There was a decree against him. But they dismiss it because they say, well, that was just Paul VI. But nonetheless, I mean, what he was being excommunicated for was something that the church excommunicates for. In fact, what he did was a real crime. Um, and there's an automatic excommunication. That automatic excommunication was not a declaratory sentence against him, in the, as we would recognize it necessarily, naming him a vitandus, someone to be shunned. So in a sense, yeah, we, we would say that Archbishop Took was not 
named and excommunicated counties fictatus by a declaratory sentence that I know of, at least that we would take seriously. But the fact is, they're ignoring the excommunicatus, uh, the excommunication most specially reserved to the Holy See. That's the most serious form of automatic excommunication that you can receive. Now, if you look back in time, okay, this is where I'm going with this, actually. Sorry for the long-winded background here. Um, but it, I think it was 1911, there was a man who was actually declared excommunicated by Pope Pius X. St. Pius X declared Arnold Harris Matthew and excommunicatus vitandus. <clears throat> and together with him, there were two priests, Catholic priests, who were named excommunicati vitandi, that is, excommunicated that they had to be absolutely shunned by the Catholic people. Why? Because Arnold Harris Matthew had gone to get himself consecrated a bishop outside the Catholic Church by an Archbishop Gull, a Jansenist of Utrecht, of the old, the old Catholic Church. You know? And so here we have a situation where we have somebody who was consecrated in such a way that the Church absolutely forbade. And there was an excommunication from St. Pius X, naming any him excommunicatus vitandus. So Arnold Harris Matthew then turned around and he started consecrating Catholic priests. His idea was to try to bring England back into the fold. So he wanted to start like an Anglo-Catholic church, okay? But no matter what his intention or how noble it might have sounded when you heard him say it, the, the Pope Pius X excommunicated him and those he consecrated for what they did. They were doing this contrary to all Catholic tradition is what they were doing. I think Archbishop, Archbishop Tuck did. So if Mario want, wanted, to, wanted to argue that, yeah, there were tolerati, excommunicati tolerati, and Catholics could, under certain circumstances, go to receive the sacraments, he's wrong in arguing that Catholics could just go to them for any reason whatsoever and just routinely receive the sacraments from them. That's not true at all. <clears throat> but if he wants to argue that the only uh, such clergy, bishops or priests, who Catholics absolutely could not go to are those who were named excommunicati vitandi, excommunicates to be banned by a declaratory sentence. And that wouldn't apply to an automatic excommunication, most especially reserved for the Holy See. He's wrong. That's not true. The Church traditionally said you must stay away from these people. You must not go to them for the sacraments. So even though he's responding to a false argument, I still think he's, he's responding to a false argument with actually a false argument. No, the Church took that very seriously. And she did not give carte blanche <laughs> approval to her, her Catholic people to go to, to even excommunicati tolerati, even tolerated excommunicants, mm -hmm. let alone those who were automatically excommunicated in such a reserved way to the Holy See. Because in the past, if you look, you find that this is the very type of thing that, that prompted the Church to name people banned. And that's what Archbishop Took did. Mm-hmm. Well, Father, we'll we'll see where this goes. I'm sure we'll uh, this. We haven't heard the last of. <laughs> I'm I'm sure so. that this is the end of it. Nobody will ask him any questions. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you know, the Turks are always coming back with false arguments and then answering false arguments with false arguments. So this is an example. And as I say, I mean, uh, they're they're heavily invested in this. I think they have almost desperate. They they have to prove that this is okay somehow. They have to justify this. Uh, just like the Novus Ordo people, they, they, they have to justify it somehow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the end, I think they have to face the fact that all of their mental gymnastics that they reach for to try to justify this just is, is, is proof positive that, that this is not justifiable mm -hmm. in the eyes of Catholic tradition, certainly. Sure. 
Well, let's let's change gears, Father. I, I wanted to ask you. You recently uh, visited Washington D.C. for the uh, for the pro-life march yes. on, on the Capitol. There, did you have any reflections or, or comments on this year's this year's pro-life march there? In, in well, again, people were arguing it was the biggest ever. I believe it. Every time I go, it looks like, uh, and I've been many times. I always go to offer mass there, the traditional mass, for our traditional Catholics who come to Washington uh, to uh, take part in the, the March for Life. Um, and I always find myself, in a sense, grieving. <clears throat> because I, I regard the, the, the um, battle for uh, what, they, what I guess they'd like to call for life, to be not just a battle for worldly life, but for eternal life. <clears throat> And I always see it in the context, in the terms that we're not battling against the powers of this world, but against the principalities and powers of darkness in the next world. So I always see it as a kind of gigantic exorcism. That we're trying to exorcise their country from the grip of this satanic evil of abortion. And uh, so when I see all of those people who've made such sacrifices to get there, so many of them young people. I mean, we're talking about 20s, even into the teens, and even, even into the single digits. I mean, so many little children there, uh, out in the cold, marching uh, down the, the road. <coughs> but I see them, you know, carrying their signs and shouting their slogans and all the rest. And I think, if only they would join united in prayer. So many of them are Novus Ordo Catholics, but they have no one to lead. I mean, we do. I mean, our, lead the rosary. We try to form this, well, what is a kind of a little, a little group, a cohesive group within this enormous mass of humanity, but they're not a mass of humanity, as the liberals would say. They're just an enormous throng of people who are there um, to, to, to recognize that abortion is evil, and, this is, and they're there to stand up. I think they're there to stand up for, for God, and uh, God's right, it's a God-given right to life. And I think they see this as not only an attack on humanity, I think they realize, for the most part, from what I can see, that this is an affront to Almighty God. And so I applaud them in that. I think that's good. I, mean, I hope they realize that anyway. But then why aren't we praying and offering God some means of reparation? We shouldn't be there simply to protest I mean, we're not, we're not there engaged in some kind of a political exercise that I can see. It's not just a political demonstration. But from what I can see, the, the, the hundreds of thousands of people who come for this seem to be focused on the, their presence there as a statement of some kind of, like a political statement against abortion. Whereas it should be a moral statement. It should be a statement of faith. In which case... What would be more eloquent a statement of that than to pray and to unite in praying the rosary? And I, I, I don't see much. I don't see much. Yeah. The, they, they go to the Novus Ordo liturgy at the National Cathedral. They have various Novus Ordo liturgies around. They have maybe even some prayer breakfasts and things like that. But these are all off-site and they're not directly involved with the, the so-called March for Life, which really, for all the people there, you know, carrying banners from this parish in the name of this saint, church, you know, the name of the, the church, uh, St. Anne's and St. Dominic's and so on, from all over the country. For all of that, it comes off as being very, very secular. And that's not going to impress Satan. And it really, ultimately, is not going to please God, maybe the individual, you know, meaning, the intention of the person uh, who's there um, might be a, very, a noble intention. But, uh, but Our Lady told us that Fatima was necessary, was prayer, and especially the rosary. And when we're trying to pray the rosary, we find we have to struggle to do so, with all of the clamor and the racket going on. That that's not going to exercise this demon. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the leaders <clears throat> of the March for Life 
could uh, actually encourage people and the, when they would send out literature on the march to please pray the rosary as you come. when you come come prepared to pray the rosary uh, pray it together pray it in your individual groups but by all means when you're on this march for life pray the rosary but I haven't seen any call for that so um, this is a, a life and death question but it's a matter really ultimately of eternal life and eternal death I mean look <clears throat> So many of those people, I mean, it's about 90, 95, 98, 99% of those people are Novus Ordo Catholic people. You don't find any, many others there, you know. If they, they, do they believe in heaven or hell anymore? You know? I assume they do. So, you know, if you were to ask them, Tom, well, okay, you're here to prevent mothers from aborting their babies. You want to save the mothers, you want to save the babies, right? But ultimately, if you're saving the babies, with the, with the knowledge, if you knew that you would save the babies' lives, and they would ultimately lose their souls, and lose eternal life, and go to hell, wouldn't that concern you more? And why aren't we addressing that? That it's not just a matter of saving their lives in this world. We want them to have eternal life. So why are we praying for that? God, spare these children's lives, but, you know, give them the grace, in sparing them, we're begging you to give them the grace to bring them eternal life. That, I think, should be the real prayer here. And by the way, again, I mean, one thing comes to another, I'm sorry. What they might be thinking is, again, what the Novitz Order was put in their minds. That aborted babies go to heaven anyway. So maybe all they're thinking is just saving their lives in this world. But I mean, here's a Novus Ordo person who might be walking down there, yelling, give me an I, give me an, give me an L, give me an I, give me an F, give me an E, what do you got in life? And I can say, no, you don't. <laughs> it's a little more difficult than that, a little more complicated than that. <clears throat> and that Novus Ordo person might be arguing, well, the baby who's aborted is going to go straight to heaven. And then I might say, what if the baby lives, because we're here, could the baby then live and, and go to hell? They might say, well, that's possible. Yeah, we believe in heaven and hell. So if we, let, if we pray or we, we argue that the baby should live and we work for the baby being spared abortion, we might be making saying, don't abort the baby, which will send the baby to heaven. Let the baby live. And in the, as a consequence, these babies will grow up to be human beings who eventually will die in sin and go to hell. So I'm asking them... Uh, is this really a good idea, you know, with your theology? Of course, the traditional faith is that babies who die without baptism, right, do not have a part in the supernatural life of Christ, and uh, the Christ, only Christ can give them the life of sanctified grace, and they would go to limbo, where they would not suffer. Um... <clears throat> But the Novus Ordo has changed that, and maybe you didn't realize that. But officially, that was changed. William Levada, when he was in charge of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, officially pronounced that unborn babies or born babies who die without baptism still are saved. He, he, they did away with the so-called limbo of the, of the infants. They did away with that. <clears throat> so maybe that's what these Novus Ordo people are thinking. I'm so happy when I get there to see all of those young people who have come all that way to stand up for what is right. But I'm also at the same time so sad to think that they are misled by the Novus Ordo. All of these hundreds of thousands of Novus Ordo Catholics who are being deceived by the Novus Ordo. Mm -hmm. And therefore their efforts are being neutralized. <clears throat> Perhaps there's no greater, greater symbol of that than the president of Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame, uh, John Jenkins, as it turns out, who has decided that Notre Dame University is going to fulfill the Obama mandate, whether it's, it's required or not, ensure employees giving them contraception, contraceptions and even abortion services. The University of Notre Dame and then has the nerve to show up. Contrary to 
uh, alumni groups that have begged him, don't come. It's a disgrace. You know, you don't belong there. Don't come to the March for Life. You're betraying the pro-life effort. And he came anyway. The fact that he shows up there pontificating in his own way, after having betrayed the whole the whole Catholic teaching uh, about these questions, uh, it is the public stance of of uh, Notre Dame University. I think is just symbolic of the whole deceitfulness of the Novus Ordo and how it is how it is uh, leading these poor people like lemmings off the cliff. Mm-hmm. Father, I, I think you're right. Um, I, I think that uh, that it seems the the essential problem with the pro-life movement today is that it's more of a political movement rather than a religious movement. You know, I I remarked at our our local march here in Cincinnati how we we always start at City Hall. We begin our march at City Hall, and I always thought that was ironic because you have this great symbol of justice, but yeah. we're really not there to ask for justice. We're mm-hmm. not there to beseech our government for anything. We're there to beseech our God, but not for justice, for, yeah. for mercy. And I think that's yeah. the problem that so many people see it as some kind of political thing. And it's, it's, yeah. that's all there is to it. And they have, just have no concept of morality. But really, this should be the whole thrust of the pro-life movement is to focus on the morality mm-hmm. of it. And to, instead of focus so much on, on, on imploring our government to change laws, we should, yeah. we should be focusing our efforts on God and yeah. begging for his mercy and begging for his assistance and begging for him to rid us. Well, here in Cincinnati, Tom, as you know, for well over 30 years now, every year, We've not had a pro-life march. We have a procession. It is a rosary procession. We're not shouting slogans and, and, and carrying political banners. We're, everyone is there to pray the rosary. If only the March for Life were the same thing, I think we'd be a lot farther ahead in this exorcism. Mm-hmm. And uh, who, know, who knows? We might have actually succeeded by now in exorcising this demon, this demon for the public life of the United States of America. But as long as... No, as long as they consider it to be a, a political exercise, they're not going to succeed. Right. Satan is not impressed by that. And unfortunately, Almighty God is not impressed by a mere political exercise. Father, how, how would you respond? I'm sure you've heard this, this argument before, that you can't legislate morality. And there are some who say that we shouldn't be focusing on, on the government at all. We shouldn't be trying to get them to, to change laws. We should just... That's right. I mean, you can't legislate morality, so why bother with laws against murder? Yeah. Well, why, why bother with laws against stealing? Right? I mean, are these are matters of morality? No. Yeah, they're matters of morality. I mean, murder, theft, right? Perjury, right? Um, et cetera, et cetera. Why bother with any laws at all? What can you say? You know? Uh, it's all about morality, you know? <coughs> Even keep off the grass signs about morality. In other words, you have property here that belongs to somebody and we have to respect it, we can't ruin it. You know? So our entire legal system is founded in the moral law. Without that, there is no legal system. When we detach the legal system from the moral law, again, there is no law, right? Because it has to be somehow rooted in the, the common good as defined by the church, the bonum cavudis, bonum cavude, which is uh, defined by the rights that God has, the rights and duties that God has given us. Our whole republic is based upon those God-given obligations and God-given rights. So when you say that you can't legislate morality, this is just one more of those really dumb sayings that liberals come up with to try to throw you off. And, you know, you're left standing there thinking, gee, what do I say to that? But the fact is, after they've walked away from you, you can think of a lot of things to say about that. Because it is so dumb, that's why it stuns you, you know? Not because it's clever, not because it's smart, not because it's a good argument, but because it is so dumb. And another one of the arguments is, you can't turn the clock back. And they say, well, can't turn the clock back. That is so dumb. But what do you say? And then they walk away, and, and the people who are with them all walk away patting them on the back that they really told you. And then you think, well, of course you can turn the block, clock, clock back. Who would buy a clock you couldn't turn back? It's broken. You know, it's defective. Of course, when you make a mistake, 
you go back and you correct it. That's just what we're meant to do, right? <laughs> they might as well argue, hey, look, if you take a wrong turn, you can't go back. Well, that's what they'd like us to think. Yeah? But whose voice is this? This is the voice of the devil. He's the one who comes up with those. This is his slogan. You can't legislate morality. And he wants us to believe it. You can't turn the clock back. That's the devil's argument, you know. And maybe that's why uh, it, it takes us back at first, like, well, what do I say to that? Because it is not merely a, a human contrivance, that argument. It really does come from Satan. That's the way he wants us to think. Mm -hmm. And God forbid that we should, you know, God forbid that we should uh, begin to think or even hesitate to answer. You know, you know Tom, our Lord said something in the gospel that's so important. He said, when you stand before the magistrate that is, you know, that is attacking your faith, don't like, beforehand think about what clever arguments you're going to have. Just pray. Pray. You need the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So if Satan is going to be inspiring these people with these really, you know, grossly stupid arguments that are so grossly stupid that, and so patently, obviously wrong that they stun you at first, well, you, you know, our poor, rational minds take a while to get around these things and to figure out all of the errors contained in a simple sentence of maybe seven or eight words. Well, what we need is the Holy Ghost, inspiration to cut right through all of that Gordian knot, just cut right through it and tell us exactly what's wrong with that. That's why it's important that we pray when we're involved in, in uh, controversies like that, we need to be asking the Holy Ghost for his guidance. It is our own arrogance and presumption that makes us think, I can handle this, I'm going to give the answers, I'm going to cut through all of the falsehoods of the, of the adversary. That's, that's a formula for disaster. We're going to wind up embarrassed, just embarrassing ourselves. And, and being humiliated in front of everybody because we're relying on our own wits. <clears throat> but we're not matching wits with <clears throat> uh, Socrates or Aristotle or, or even Einstein. We're, we're, we're matching, trying to match wits with the devil. He's the one who's come up with these false arguments. And so whenever we get into these controversies, we need to be humble enough to beg the Holy Ghost for his guidance to see clearly right and wrong truth and falsehood, and not hesitate. We're given, we're given a line that is so, so wrong, it is just almost stupefyingly ridiculous that we can, with great clarity, point out that that is wrong and, and make people understand exactly why it's so wrong. Mm -hmm. it, it takes divine inspiration for that. We, heaven knows we need that. And Father, I think the, the perfect example of that, just, just read the other day in, in Genesis with, uh, with Joseph, when he appeared before Pharaoh to mm -hmm. interpret his, his dream, Joseph did exactly that, just mm -hmm. placed his, his faith in God, didn't try and think about what he was going to say beforehand or, or, or kind of work up his, his wit or anything like that. He just simply placed his, his faith in God and, mm -hmm. and gave the right answers, and, and it mm -hmm. won for him Pharaoh's favor and... Uh, the rest is history. That's a very but, good example. <clears throat> Father, I, th I thought we could end with uh, this recent interview that, that Francis gave where he urges the world to not fear the rise of, of China and the things that are going on there. So could you... Well, we did a, a brief program about that question of Francis <laughs> telling the loyalist, that is, bishops loyal to Rome in China, to step aside and let the Communist Party appointee so-called bishops of the, what, what is it called, the Patriotic Catholic Association, right, uh, of China from 1957, something that was established by the Communist Chinese uh, Communist Party to be a replacement for the Catholic Church. It, it, they, they actually make no bones about it. This is the Patriotic Church of China. This is what Catholics, if they're patriots, really should belong to. The implication is the same implication that went back to Henry VIII and so on, that if you're not loyal to the crown, you are traitors, and you should be punished because you're not loyal to the crown, laissez majesté. In other words, you have to be considered a traitor because you're not supporting the government authority. Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, right? 
uh, brought up charges against Catholic priests and simply because she, she charged them with treason because they were loyal to the Holy See in Rome. Now we have a so-called Pope, Francis, right? He is a Pope of the Novus Ordo. There's no doubt about that. Uh, actually playing right along with this in China, saying that now the true bishops of China are going to be those who were chosen by the Communist Party and who represent Chinese culture, basically, before they represent the Catholic faith. They represent loyalty to Chinese uh, culture, but especially to the Chinese government, which is communist. So he's told those who have been imprisoned, and there are, there are some imprisoned right now by the communist authorities over there, because they've been loyal to Rome, or what they think is Catholic Rome. And uh, they've been abandoned, they've been betrayed by Francis, who's told the Chinese people, the Catholics over there in China, now you have to accept all of you, the Chinese laity, the Catholic laity, about 10 million of them, and even the so-called, the loyalist bishops to Francis and to Rome, are told you have to recognize these communist party, uh, what, what should I say, um, bureaucrats, Right, the Patriotic Catholic Association, as your true Catholic bishops. Um, <coughs> Cardinal um, Zen and others have actually said that they're better off with nobody, no bishops at all, than to have communists mm-hmm. as their bishops. And, um, I mean, this, I think it was, a, who was it? Was, I don't think it was Cardinal Zen or not, but... For years, he's been arguing this point because he saw where Francis was going with this. At one point, one of these men, uh, one of these, I think it might have been Cardinal Zen, who actually came to Rome clandestinely and got in line at the Vatican in a line of pilgrims. This was a few years ago. And went through this line of pilgrims until he finally got up to Francis just to hand him a letter begging him not to betray the Catholics in China. That's what he had to do to try to, to deliver a message because otherwise he wouldn't have been even given an opportunity. They wouldn't have even let him get near him. And so um, what, you're, what you're saying now, Tom, has to do with this. This is now a message from Francis about his uh, kind, of, kind of obliquely commenting on his command now that the Catholic, what is left of the Catholic Church in China has to recognize these communist party official, pointy so-called bishops, right? Um, his answer is, in his first ever interview on China and the Chinese people given just January 28th, just days ago, to the Asia Times, that the world should not be afraid of the rise of China. We should not be afraid of the rise of China. China. Um, it says here, he sent Chinese New Year's greetings to the Chinese people and President, what is it, Xi Jinping? Or is it Xi Jinping? I don't, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But Jinping is the president of China who is actually ordering the demolition of so many Christian churches across the length and breadth of the land of China, just bulldozing them down. Um, knocking the crosses off of these churches, imprisoning the people who go there. And, I mean, not only Catholic, but Protestant also. He's anything to do with Christ. He is just trying to level to the ground. At the time that Francis says, got nothing to fear from China. <coughs> Meaning, we've got nothing to fear from the Chinese communists. We've got nothing to fear from the Chinese Communist Party that is in the middle of conducting these very intense pogroms against anything that even uh, invokes the name of Christ in China. And Francis is over here telling us, have no fear, all is well, as he's betraying these millions of Catholic, would-be Catholic people right into the arms of the communist Chinese government. One of the, um, one of the loyalist bishops said, well, what, he, what he's going to get out of this, Francis is going to get out of this. Okay. 
he may um, he may even increase the number who are going to join at that point uh, the government but he'll have nobody left going to the churches anymore they won't they, they just won't go mm -hmm. so he's going to be emptying out what's left of the of the Catholic Church in China if he were a an agent of the communist Chinese party, he could not do more damage by this. Father, you, you mentioned uh, Henry VIII and, and what happened there and, and, and that analogy, and it seems that what Francis is doing is even worse than that, because at least with, with Henry VIII you had what, what could be a, a legitimate form of government, but when you're dealing with a, a communist so-called government, it's not even a legitimate form of government. I mean, traditionally the church wouldn't even recognize communist governments. They say we cannot uh, have any, any um, we can't negotiate with them, we can't even, we can't even talk to them, can't even recognize them because they're a completely illegitimate form of government. <coughs> or at least with Henry VIII you had what could be considered a, a legitimate form of government. So it seems that what Francis has done is even worse than that. Uh, you know, actually, Tom, you're right. If you don't mind, I mean, in the last uh, bulletin here in my quick session, I have an entry here which isn't going to take hours to read. <laughs> But I will, if you don't mind, yeah. I'm going to read this here because I think for those who didn't see the first video, it still might be a little confusing as to the gravity of what Francis is doing here, pursuant to what you mentioned here. The, the article in the Immaculate Conception Church Bulletin of last week's Sexagesima Sunday is entitled, Marked for Death, Comrade Francis's Betrayal of the Catholics in Communist China. A rather neutral title, I would say. <laughs> okay. For years, we've seen Francis travel throughout the world to extend his quote-unquote humble hand to leftists and enemies of Christ and his church. Now Francis is personally ordering the underground persecuted loyalist to Rome bishops to resign and to acknowledge the bishops approved and appointed by the Chinese Communist Party as the true Catholic bishops of the 10 million Chinese Catholics. A little bit of background. Once the communists led by Mao Zedong took control by force over the Chinese mainland in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party has persecuted the Catholic Church. Throughout the 1950s, the ruthless communist government in China tried to break down the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. But despite, despite the brutality of persecution by the atheist tyrants, the church grew in numbers. Thus, in 1957, the Communist Party established its own, quote, religious organization called the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association. Its purpose, according to the Catholic Bishop Andrew Tsien of Taiwan, is first of all, to serve as a, quote, substitute for the true Roman Catholic Church, end quote, in China, and ultimately, quote, to eliminate religion in order to achieve a pure, materialistic, and autocratic society, close quotes. To accomplish its goals, the communists condemned the true Catholics in 1950s China, who were faithful to Rome as the underground church and imprisoned tens of thousands of true Catholics for practicing their faith outside the control of the so-called Patriotic Association. Many thousands of Catholics died in jail, others were publicly executed, and the persecution not only continues today, but the Chinese Communist Party has intensified its cruel legal restrictions and punishments. <clears throat> Despite the many insistent pleas by Cardinal Joseph Zen, former Catholic Bishop of Hong Kong, the Supreme Pontiff of the New Order, Jorge Francis Bergoglio, has now ordered that the Chinese bishops appointed by and loyal to the Vatican must step aside. They must recognize as the true Catholic bishops of the 10 million Chinese Catholics, the so-called bishops of the Patriotic Association who have been approved and appointed by the Communist Party of China. One of Francis's bishops must now even consider himself to be the assistant to one of the government appointees. 
Cardinal Zen is on record as saying the Catholics of China would be better off with no bishops at all than with the communist government bishops. And that this arrangement continues, constitutes a surrender of the church to the communists. Cardinal Zen even referred to the case of Cardinal Joseph Minzenti as an example of such treason. And I have a note here. Cardinal Minzenti was the Catholic primate in Hungary who in 1949 was charged, tortured, and imprisoned by the communist government of Hungary. When the short-lived uprising against the communist regime set him free in 1956, he escaped to the American Embassy in Budapest, where he spent 15 years as a powerful symbol for Hungarian Catholic resistance to communism. And finally, in 1971, Paul VI, his family name was Montini, gave the communists their wish by ordering Cardinal Minzenti to leave Hungary. And later in 1973, Montini further served the Red Dictators by appointing as leader as leader of the Catholics in Hungary, a bishop, Lekai, who was a collaborator and a compromiser with the communists. But this was not the first or the worst betrayal of Paul VI, or by Paul VI. In the early 1950s, as an assistant to Pope Pius XII, and behind his back, Montini engaged in clandestine, diplomatic communications with the communist leaders in Moscow who were still headed by the murderous Joseph Stalin. You mentioned that the church would not recognize the communist government. <clears throat> and that was an example of Paul, Paul Pius XII would not recognize the murderous communist government of Joseph Stalin. But Montini, who became Paul VI, was working behind his back right from the Vatican carrying on negotiations as though they were the legitimate rulers of Russia. No wonder Montini would betray Minzetti later and now his successor as Pope of the New Order, Francis, is betraying what's left of the church in China. There's a history for this. So I just end, in light of Francis's repeated condemnations of capitalism and his frequent and jovial consorting with a gallery of socialists communists and Marxists and his pronouncements about atheists going to heaven and, and communists being real but secret Catholics because they understand the true meaning of the gospel. Francis acts more the part of a comrade Francis than a Pope Francis. It was just a matter of time before he openly declared himself an enemy of Christ by boldly and coldly issuing a death sentence for the faith and the faithful in China. And I end with the words, pray for them and pray for him. And I mean it. We've got to pray for the souls. We've got to pray for them. and got to pray for him. Mm -hmm. um, this is, well, I don't know. Somebody was talking about the 30 pieces of silver, but Francis, what, Francis isn't even getting the 30 pieces of silver. Or maybe he is. I don't know what they're, what, what, what kind of reward is he getting? other than just destroying the remnants of the church in China, built uh, through the sacrifice of so many martyrs. So um, this is outrageous. What, what can one say? What adjective is there that is vile enough to describe adequately what he's doing? Yeah. But anyway, just well, so what you said there just brought it to mind that the church would not in any way countenance this. And here he is. Here he is not only recognizing the communist uh, tyrants over there, but he's actually saying, well, they're the ones who are actually appointing the bishops now for the Catholics. And this is now the true Catholic Church in China. Mm -hmm. Inconceivable. How can anybody ignore the fact or justify How can one fail to recognize who he is and what he's doing? Well, Father, we're, we're well on our way to the, to the Lenten season, so it seems we have Plenty to pay for. You know, this should inspire us, you're right, Tom, to want to offer practice sacrifice. And this gets back to the question of why are we dispensing ourselves from the, the, the Friday abstinence at a time when the church is so much in need of sacrifice? 
And this should rededicate our efforts to say we're going to have the best Lent we ever spent, most faithful, and we're going to offer to God everything we possibly can for the sake of our Holy Mother, the Church, the salvation of souls, and the conversion of sinners. So that's a very good point. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. Rededicate ourselves to that purpose. That's what Our Lady asked for, right? Prayer and penance. Prayer of the Rosary. Penance, well, we know what that means, so it's called for. Tom, thank you very much for being here tonight. We need to close with some kind of a positive note, too, by the way. <laughs> Don't you think? That's right. What I'm hoping is that the people, the simple Catholic people of China, will have the sense as Catholicos, the Catholic sense to recognize that there's something gravely wrong here. And they will return to their true Catholic roots. And they will, abandon, they will recognize that it is the Novus Ordo that has brought them to this point. Why do I say that? Because if you study the history, you find that when the Patriotic Association was young, and the Novus Ordo brought in its changes, oddly enough, the church, the so-called Patriotic Association under the Communists, did not initially take the changes of Vatican II. Initially did not take the new Mass, initially did not take the new sacraments. So here you have, here you had a situation where the Catholics in China who were underground and trying to be loyal to Rome were on board with these changes of the Novus Ordo, and the Patriotic Association was very slow to change and kept with the traditional. But oddly enough, and I think this tells you a story, <clears throat> that the Patriotic Association, even though they were totally contrary to the idea of any loyalty to Rome, and even punished it, they saw the value of bringing in the changes <clears throat> because they saw it served their purpose to bring in these changes. Their purpose was to make a religion of China, that China was their religion. And they saw in the changes of Vatican II that very message. The enculturation, the local culture should take precedence over Catholic tradition. So they actually began to bring in these translations, even though in principle they were totally contrary to the idea of having loyalty to the Vatican, like a foreign power. They saw the changes that were coming out of the Vatican at Vatican II were actually serving the communist purposes to enculturate the church in China to build up a kind of Chinese church. And that's what they really want to do. They want a patriotic association. And the changes serve their purpose. You know, I think that's a very telling fact. Um, anyway, I hope I, hope I explained that in such a way that, that it was clear, you know the point that it makes, mm -hmm. um, that the communists accepted the changes because they saw it served their purpose of creating a Chinese Catholic Church, yep. distinct from the real, true Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. But anyway, with that, you've been trying to close the program. With that, I promise <laughs> I will let you close the program. <laughs> Thank you, Father. I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Well, I'm sure the audience appreciates it, too. So. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>